0: Welcome to VCR, a Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake.
1: Every gun makes its own tune.
0: <laughs> okay, we are back
1: for our spoiler episode of The Good and the Bad and the Ugly.
0: Yes. So, like you said, it's a spoiler full discussion. If you haven't seen this movie before, please go watch the uh, the Primer episode and learn about if this movie is for you. Spoilers. Everybody should watch this movie. And you should watch it preferably without all of the spoiler discussion that you and I are about to to get into. And you
1: should preferably watch it with your dad.
0: (laughs) Also very much agree. Mm -hmm. That being said, we're just going to get right into it. We're going to start in front of the camera and work our way back. So take it away, Michael.
1: You know what? I actually would rather, instead of talking about the story, I would rather talk about the characters. Sure. Because... The story itself almost kind of takes a backseat to the characters.
0: Yeah, I agree. And
1: I will say that, like, I first saw this movie when I was, like, 16, and I, like, immediately fell in love with Clint Eastwood's character, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard not to. Like, he's he's cool. He's brooding. He's completely in control of every situation he's in, for the yep. most part. He's sarcastic. He's bitter. He's, like, gruff, but composed. But, like, I will say, and I noticed this last year, too, it feels like every time I watch this movie, I like Tuco a little more.
0: I will say that I think this is Tuco's movie, and we're just all living in it.
1: Yeah. You know what? He's the first of the three main characters. He's the first one that we meet, albeit quite briefly. And, like, he's the... we really, you know, it's funny. Like, I was thinking about I feel like this movie has a theme when it comes to names, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the whole trilogy is called The Man with No Name. We only know Clint Eastwood as Blondie. We only know Lee Van Cleef as Angel Eyes. And yet, we get Tuco's full birth name, like, yeah, Tuco Ramirez, like, we get his full name, and like, we also learn about his past and yes. like his circumstances and where he grew up. Whereas Levin and Cleef and Clayton Eastwood, Angel Eyes and Blondie, they are complete mysteries, even at the end of the film. We have yeah. no idea where they came from, right? Yeah. Whereas we really get to know Tuco and who he is and what he wants, both for better or for worse.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And actually, on, on that note as well, Clint Eastwood was somewhat hesitant to take this movie on because when he read the script, he said, this is really Tuco's movie, and I'm I'm almost a side character to Tuco.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think it's more like a—this is, despite being called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, this is almost more of like a buddy movie. Yeah. You know, almost absolutely. like— um. What's that movie we watched last year? Uh, The other Western, Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes, not quite, but it's almost kind of like a duo partnership movie. And like, I have to say, like, Blondie and Tuco really bounce off each other well, right? Like, Clint Eastwood is very like measured and composed and put together, whereas Tuco is like short and grimy and dirty and kind of pathetic. But he's also fast talking and like surprisingly pretty funny. <laughs> like
0: yeah, well, and what I'll say to that as well is that without the just the charm of these two opposing characters, without without how well they're performed and and how well they just have that kind of charisma together, the first hour of the movie wouldn't have worked as well as it did because the first hour of the movie is just like those two you know, and their shtick, basically, and and Mm -hmm. the back and forth that they have together. And without the strong writing and the strong performances, honestly, you could probably cut that in half and and make this movie a lot tighter. But how great that is is what kind of carries the first half of the movie because, like, without it, I think that Sergio Leone, the director, would have probably cut the first part of the movie quite a bit down.
1: It definitely wouldn't work as well. And like the other thing I noticed about Tuco and I feel like I notice this a little more every time I rewatch it is that like Tuco is like impulsive and brash and like hot-headed but like every time I watch this movie I'm just like he is kind of cunning. Yeah. Like in a weird like he's very resourceful. Like he's I wouldn't call him smart. Like we see that he's almost illiterate at different points, but yeah. like he is weirdly competent. You
0: can, be, you can be, very competent, very strategic, without being necessarily incredibly intelligent. Like, there's different types of inche- intelligence, right? And he, his intelligence isn't the standard type of intelligence that you might think about.
1: It's a very kind of like, like I mean, it's I think street smart. He's got a yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost him. like you know who he almost kind of reminded me of rewatching who? it this most recent time. Uh, Saul Goodman. Yeah. Or, like Bob Odenkirk, a little bit, right? Yeah, like he's just kind of. Who's
0: also a very street smart character.
1: Mm hmm. You know, all the characters have their own kind of blend of like pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Like, I think one of the best scenes of the movie is when. So, the movie opens w- on this extreme close up of this guy, and <laughs> him and his friends are going to go ambush Tuco, but he gets away. And then, like, two hours later, after you've already forgotten about him. He ambushes Tuco in the bath, and like he lost an arm during the shootout. And he has this kind of speech where he's like, "Ah, I've been looking for you for eight months, and I taught myself how to shoot with my left, and blah, 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 blah. And it almost kind of seems like a hero speech. And then Tuco, in the bathtub, shoots him four times. Mm -hmm. His gun was hiding under the bubbles. And he says that great line where he's like, when you got to shoot, shoot, don't talk. (laughs) Yeah. No, granted, Tuco does plenty of stupid shit throughout the movie, but like he is like he's canny and savvy in like a way, in his own way.
0: Yeah, yeah, I very much agree. Again, it goes back to that street smarts that he kind of has. I had this like really interesting kernel of thought that that you pulled out of me, and then I immediately lost. And
1: it. then I shoved it right back up inside you. Yeah, nice. Uh... There are two kinds of people in this world, Blake. People who remember their thoughts and the people who move on.
0: <laughs> well, and th- okay. That's what I'll say as well is, you know, that's that's part of his, his joke, right? Like he continuously says that throughout the movie. There's two kinds of people in this world. And it's repeated and repeated and repeated to the point where it gets kind of old. And then it kind of, you know, all snaps into place at the very end of the film mm-hmm. with, with Clint Eastwood kind of saying it back at him. Yeah. What I'll say about Tuco as well is he's definitely the most fleshed out character of the three. Like like you said, we learn about his backstory and in a lot of detail. That's actually the only critique I have of this film is that I think that, and this is where I thought there was a bit of a pacing issue, is that I don't think we needed the relationship with his brother in this film. I think that was just one scene too many.
1: See, I strongly disagree.
0: Okay, explain to me why then.
1: You know what? I don't think this is an incredibly plot-focused movie. And I know that sounds ridiculous because I'm always harping on, like, the plot and stuff. To be honest, like, the scene with Tuco and his brother and, like, the following scene where Tuco is on the carriage with Blondie, I genuinely think those are the two saddest scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Really? Like, they really endeared me to Tuco. Like... So again, just to catch everyone up, Tuco brings Blondie to a monastery to recover and his brother is a friar there. And him and his brother are brothers. Him and his brother. <laughs> him and his brother um, basically took ver- two very different paths. Like as Tuco explains, like where we grow up, you could have either become a bandit or become a priest and you went your way and I went my way. And Tuco's brother is extremely disappointed at him and slaps him at one point. Yeah. And then Tuco runs off, and then he gets on. And then we see that uh, Blondie, Clint Eastwood, has been silently observing this whole exchange. Right. And then they get on the carriage together, and Tuco starts telling these wild lies about how his brother loves him so much and never wants him to leave. And he has that really poignant line where he's like, I know that no matter what happens, I'll always have a brother who will never refuse me a bowl of soup. And Clint Eastwood knows he's lying, but right. doesn't call him on it. And he has that kind of, it's a weirdly tender moment where he's like, oh, you know, it goes good after a meal, a good cigar. And he shares his cigar with Tuco. Like, right. I think it's a phenomenally important scene, not only because it endears us to Tuco, But you almost, it's kind of a weirdly heartwarming scene between these two characters. Like you almost kind of believe that they sort of, I wouldn't say they're friends, but they at least sort of understand each other. I also think it's important because I do think Clint Eastwood's character, Blondie, has like a very subtle character arc in this movie where like he gradually becomes just a little bit more merciful Throughout yes. the course of the movie, and I think that's like the first time we really see him be like, you know, like again, he knows Tuco's lying, he knows Tuco's full of shit, but he just kind of like, here, buddy, like here's a cigar, like I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna let you have this, like,
0: yeah, yeah, interesting. That's a that's a really interesting perspective, and I I, I didn't think about it how how it creates that moment, that connection between the two of those characters. So I I still stand by that. I think that it's a little awkward in pacing and that, you know, it is, it goes into the character of Tuco more than any of the other characters, but I can understand now where you're coming from and and its importance in the film.
1: Well, I see what you're saying, but I almost feel like we needed that scene just because even if you don't agree that Tuco is sort of essentially the main character, I do think you kind of need a little bit of that, human touch at this point in the movie right
0: yeah especially with how tuco essentially has to you know switch gears with his torturing of blondie and Mm -hmm. then suddenly try his best to revive him from mostly dead (laughs) mostly dead (laughs) yeah yeah i pretty much killed that guy (laughs) Yeah, to in order to find where the grave is.
1: I do think it's interesting how, and this is something that a lot of people have pointed out, like, this movie is called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, and yet, like, when you look at our three main characters, I don't know that I would say any one of them is worse than the other. Yeah. Like even Clint Eastwood's character, quote unquote, the good, he's not a particularly good guy. I think he's sort of becomes a little more merciful throughout the course of the movie but like it's funny how
0: he he's the good in that he's the character that we most look up to
1: and yet what's funny and i just noticed this on my most recent watch is like blondie and tuco have this scheme where they're conning people and mm-hmm. finally at one point blondie just decides he doesn't want to work with tuco anymore so he abandons him in the middle of the desert and tells him that the nearest town is 70 miles away right Right. And then later on, Tuco captures Blondie and forces him to walk through a hundred miles of desert, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the process, Blondie almost dies of dehydration. What's funny is that like I you know, when you look at it, what Blondie did to Tuco was almost just as bad, but like the story doesn't really dwell on it. He abandons Tuco in the middle of the desert, and then it's, like, one scene later, Tuco is, like, shambling back to town, right? Right. But then when Tuco decides to torture Blondie, we get, like, five minutes of, like, excruciating detail. Yeah. So, even, again, like, in that scene, you really feel for Blondie, but it's also kind of like, you know, you did the same thing to him, essentially, (laughs) like... Yeah. Now, granted, you weren't there, like, cackling and enjoying every moment of torture, but, like, you know, it's. So you mentioned, like, the title cards Mm -hmm. that show up, right? It's funny how, like, Blondie's title card almost feels sarcastic to me. Yeah. So he's abandoning Tuco in the middle of the desert, and he's just like, such ingratitude for all the times I've saved your life. And then the camera, the screen is just like, the good. Yeah. And it's like. (laughs) I almost feel like there should be, like, a question mark at the end of that. <laughs> like, the good? Uh.
0: Yeah, it's it's a really, really great title for a film. And, mm-hmm. it, and it, you know, it explains that there are three central characters and that, you know, they're co-related to each other in a sense. It almost, in a sense, even spoils the end of the film as well, right? Like, and, and how this is going to play out because it, it, it kind of hits the good and the bad against each other and then the ugly is you know who who does the ugly see himself better aligned with who does he think he can kind of earn his sympathies from in in the final the shootout
1: now granted it's subtle but i do think the bad is actually the worst one out of the three of them Oh, easily i i think yeah easily he is like, we don't see that much of him in the beginning. And I think that's by design, because it makes him seem more mysterious and aloof. Yes. But, like, what little we do see of him, it's like, oh, he's torturing a woman for information. He eats somebody's dinner, then shoots him, then shoots his eldest son on his way out, basically for no reason. Like, Well,
0: he he takes joy in torturing people, I think there's some satisfaction that he gets out of all of that because this is actually a thought I was thinking about is that there's that opening scene. He kills the man who he's been tasked with getting information from and then kills his son. And immediately before that, the man gives him a thousand dollars to try to pay him off. Like he asks him, well, how much are you being paid? $500 He gives him a thousand dollars. And then he goes back to the man who originally set up this $500 contract for information and he starts talking to the guys like, oh, yeah, here's the information that you asked me to go find kind of thing. You know, what's really funny about this is I learned something about this gold kind of situation. And then the man paid me a thousand dollars and he didn't really explicitly say what that was for. But I'm going to take that as he was paying me a thousand dollars to kill you. So and I put some pillow.
1: Puts a pillow over his head, shoots him in the face. Yeah, he's like, you <laughs> yeah. know, like
0: I, I honor, I honor the contracts that I make, mm-hmm. and he does, but it, it's in a twisted sort of way. Like it, it's always to his benefit, right? Like, and then you know, like you said, we, he's, we see that he tortures the woman to get the information of where Bill Carson is at this point in time, and then later he infiltrates the union and then um, becomes like a a military officer or he just inserts himself as like a military type of officer and then tortures people for information or for his own tortures
1: people for fun and
0: profit. (laughs) Exactly. Like he's definitely the most morally evil uh, and corrupt of the three of them. And he's the character that as the audience that we would see as the most evil of of the three because of his actions throughout the film
1: also the cinematography itself does a really good job framing him as sinisterly as possible like yes after he shoots his boss in the face so he's it's the middle of the night he's woken his boss up in bed like it's like a fallout game and he's collecting rewards from a quest (laughs) from an NPC. And he's holding up a lantern and it's the middle of the night. He shoots his boss and he's like, hey, hey, hey. And then he blows out the lantern and the screen flashes to black. I was just like, okay, everyone, that's the bad guy. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Actually, I want to circle back. Cause I, I had this thought earlier and, and I don't want to miss it, but I thought it was really funny as I watched this movie and I was trying to think about why I like this movie as much as I do. And I think, Part of it is the vibe of the film. Like there's there's a very specific vibe to this movie. It's, you know, the, the plot is actually relatively straightforward and and not all that, you know, dense or complicated necessarily.
1: Not really. It's more like a se- again, it's more like a series of vignettes. Like- yeah, and
0: he, in the characters, like you said, like Blondie has a very subtle character arc in this film. And, and the characters themselves don't really experience a whole lot of arc throughout the film either. And it's I thought that was really fascinating because all of these components typically make for a movie that you wouldn't necessarily enjoy. However, I think that part of it is just how masterfully directed this movie is, is, is part of the reason why you love it so much. And also, I also somewhat wonder if, you know, all of these different pieces because this is your favorite movie or one of your favorite movies.
1: I would say this is my favorite movie. Like I'd put it, if I had to put it down to my, like my top five, this isn't the number one.
0: Yeah. And so I think that because of all those pieces, I wonder if because of how much you love this movie, other sort of vibe type movies don't necessarily click, click with you as much because you know, you already have this.
1: That's an interesting point. I think, okay. well, part of it, to be honest, is I think I watched this movie at like 16 Mm -hmm. and it really clicked with me then. And I think the things that click with you when you're 16 kind of just stay with you for your whole life. So I think that's obviously part of it. Yeah. I also just think there's something very Michael about this movie in the sense that like, again, for those of you who don't know, I write my own novels and like, Even like the tone of this movie, where it's bleak but kind of funny but also kind of dirty. Like, that's something that I kind of strive to replicate in my own work. And it's also like the kind of novels and movies that I really, really vibe with kind of replicate that same tone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, bleak and violent but also kind of witty. Like,
0: it's very much in the same vibe as quentin tarantino's films
1: kind of yeah it's kind of there's something i also just think there's something about you know what i'm i think what really sells this movie for me is i think it's a two-part thing it's the characters and it's also the setting it's not necessarily the plot it's the characters and the setting like yeah this is
0: this is a a very interesting character study and that none of the characters really grow significantly or develop more than they
1: are. No. And they're very specific character and they're all very kind of like grimy. They're all kind of reprehensible people in their own way. Right. Yeah. Like even Clint Eastwood's character, the good, not really a great guy. He's he sort of develops a little bit as the movie goes on, but I wouldn't say he's a great guy at the end of the movie. And like, Tuco is just Tuco. Tuco is unapologetically himself. Yeah, he's and, never
0: going to change who he is.
1: And Angel Eyes is pretty clearly a monster, but like when you look at the three of them as a unit, they all contrast really well with each other. Like, I particularly like what they did with Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef, right? Where Clint Eastwood is very kind of like gruff and tumble and like functional. Whereas Lee Van Cleef is almost kind of like He's like a gentleman. Like he's always wearing like a nice suit, like he smokes a nice pipe, like Mm -hmm. he doesn't really like to get his hands dirty all that much. Like they have a good kind of contrast with each other. And then Tuco in particular, he's short and grimy and dirty and kind of pathetic and loud. It's funny, you've got these two kind of gruff, stoic badasses. And then there's Tuco just kind of running interference between the two of them. And then just the setting in particular. It's very it's like you said, it's a little bit post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Like, this is a setting where civilization has almost collapsed.
0: Yeah, as, as close as, as we'll ever see it, hopefully, in America.
1: <laughs> Let's hope so. There's that great scene towards the end where Clint east I gotta stop calling him Clint Eastwood. Blondie and Angel Eyes and Angel Eyes' henchmen are just kind of hanging out in this abandoned town. And, like... The town is actively being murdered while they're just hanging out there.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. and
1: they're just they're just kind of dealing with
0: it. It's probably almost in reference to World War II, right? Like, there's probably mm-hmm. some sort of callback to World War II and what it was like in Europe at that time, especially in the viewpoint of when this movie is made. Like a lot of a lot of Hollywood and and I'm sure European films at this time are are all allegories to World War II.
1: Yeah, you know, I never thought about it like that, but you're right. Like, World War II would have been very close in people's memories.
0: Yeah, especially the people who are making these films at this in this period. Mm-hmm. So what's really cool about the way that this movie is structured is the characters are all loosely connected in the first hour of the film, right? Mm-hmm and i love how things kind of snap together like how how everything suddenly makes sense and and you know like the first hour we get we get a lot of setup and there's like all these like you know we move from like interesting scene to interesting scene and you know each of the characters are doing interesting things in the wild west right and and when it really snaps together is when Tuco and Blondie are in the desert, and we come across, and it's a really somber scene because there's all these, you know, we we find all these dead Civil War vets in the uh, carriage, and then as the camera's panning through it, there's the man who's wearing the eye patch, and suddenly the whole movie is, you know, it makes sense, and and suddenly it feels like we know where we're heading, right? Because mm-hmm. the the movie kind of plods along like um Angel Eyes's character is obviously from the get-go on this mission to find the $200,000 of gold but we really don't know how Blondie and Tuco's characters are going to fit into this world and into this story because
1: you almost kind of forget about it
0: yeah like they, yeah. they have kind of early on in the film they kind of cross paths in the sense that Angel Eyes is on his way out of town and he kind of predicts what's about to happen and how there's a guardian angel watching over tuco
1: that's a great scene because it also just shows how perceptive angel eyes is he's just kind of like he's just kind of like oh it's these like it's almost kind of like he's taking notice of these two other characters just being like oh okay like hey like
0: in that in that moment he's the viewer right like that's the one time where we as as the viewers can connect to him because, because we're observing it on the same level that he is mm. with, with a bit of ad admi- like admiration almost for it. Like, and not necessarily respect, but it's like, ah, like, you know, I, I kind of, I get it. Like it's, it's kind of a cool, it's an interesting con. It's an interesting idea.
1: Kinda. Yeah. So I do also like that scene later on where angel eyes tortures Tuco for information And then he basically just brings Blondie into his office. He's like, all right, like put these clothes on. You're coming with me. He's like, I'll split the gold with you, whatever. And Blondie's just like, you're not going to torture me? And Angel Eyes is like, no, it wouldn't work on you. So I just kind (laughs) of like the implication that Angel Eyes took one look at Blondie and was just like, I can't torture this guy. Like, it's not going to work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: And yeah, so like I I just think that it's really it's really interesting storytelling how how the first hour is this very loosely connected story and we just kind of go from set piece to set piece and and you know, it's it's kind of just like interesting dialogue between each of the characters and then and then everything snaps together and it suddenly makes sense and it feels like, you know, it feels like suddenly we're finally on on the same page as to where the story is heading. And it you can also... see that in film a lot.
1: It also really shows how Blondie and Tuco really just stumble into the plot.
0: Right. Like they have
1: no business even being in this movie, but they just kind of stumble ass backwards into the plot.
0: It's really fun. It's really fun setup.
1: Yeah, it is. And the fact that the, you know what? I will say the first hour maybe is a bit slow paced, but it is kind of admirable that the movie took like almost a whole hour just to be like, Oh right! Here's the plot. Like, go for it.
0: Like, yeah, I love it. I I, I thought it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, everything just snaps into place. And then and then you know we suddenly we realize as Tuco takes on the name Bill Carson, we're like, oh okay. And so now he's assumed the identity of Bill Carson. Like, this is gonna make it very easy for Angel Eyes to put two and two together that they he has information. And just like that, Angel Eyes is there at the Union camp to to find
1: Bill Carson. Bill yeah. Carson. There's that great shot too, where Angel Eyes has his back to the camera, and somebody shouts "Bill Carson," and he just wh- whips around like what?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's really fascinating. The movie just plods along. It, to me, it never feels slow, but there's kind of a a gradual build, right, in this movie to one of in my opinion, like probably my favorite scene of the film, apart from, you know, the big grand finale, which is that massive civil war battle that we get to see take place. The battle that is a great bridge.
1: moment. Yeah. And it comes almost near the end of the movie,
0: right? Yeah. It's when Blondie and Tuco kind of stumble on this battle and they befriend the commander of the union at that point i I think so i think
1: it's the union it's a very 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 drunk union captain
0: yeah and and you know he kind of takes them under his wing he kind of explains what this war is all about and why they're there specifically to take control of this bridge there's also
1: a great there's a great moment when they're introducing themselves to him and he's just like what are your names and Blondie's like, uh... And Tuco's like, uh... And the guy's just like, ah, oh, let's forget the names. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's why I think this movie has a weird, like, name fetish, almost. <laughs> like- yeah,
0: yeah. So, it, it's just like a... It's a really well-designed scene, you know? Like, we get... He gets under... He brings them like under his wing kind of thing, explains, you know, the futility of this war and and the fight for this bridge.
1: And he basically says like the most important weapon in war is alcohol and whichever side has the most alcohol wins.
0: Yeah, basically, (laughs) yeah. Because that way
1: you can get your troops drunk and convince them to throw their lives away.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And so it's really awesome because, you know, they go to war and then Tuco and Blondie realize that in order to get across they have to essentially get both sides to just give up or else they're never going to get across and it's a
1: great moment to show just the futility of the war in that both sides are fighting over this bridge to nowhere essentially and like even the drunk union captain is like, I've had dreams and I've thought about just blowing up that fucking bridge. Yeah, but <laughs> I know? would lose
0: my job if I ever did it, basically. Like, yeah, I, I yeah. would lose my life. And then it, it's, it's such a great buildup to even in this scene because, you know, they blow up the bridge. And it's really, not only is it epic and wild because it's a really crazy explosion. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, pre-special effects, so it's, like, a legitimate explosion. They really blew
1: up that bridge, yeah. With
0: the actors there on set. More on that later. Ha <laughs> And And it becomes, like, a really poignant scene, right? Because the commander dies during the battle, or he's... He's wounded, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's critically wounded, and before he passes, he, he gets that moment to himself where, you know, he gets to finally see that the bridge is destroyed and that you know, his men will no longer have to suffer.
1: Yeah, and that's another moment where it shows Clint Eastwood's, or it shows Blondie's sort of character development in what, right before him and Tuco go to blow up the bridge, he, like, approaches the bedside of the wounded captain. He's just like, hey, like, keep your eyes and ears open, wink, and then he just runs off. So, yeah, it's interesting.
0: It's one of the more poignant scenes of the film.
1: I do almost feel like... Watching this again my most recent time, there is sort of this weird tonal shift in the third hour where the war itself almost comes more into focus. Specifically, like, the carnage and the futility of war come more into focus. Yeah. And, like, the tone itself becomes a little more poignant and sad. Like, I actually think my favorite moment, my favorite quote in the whole movie is when Tuco and Blondie are watching the men fight over the bridge and Blondie just kind of says to himself, I've never seen so many men wasted so badly.
0: Yeah. It, it, the whole thing is just, it's, it's just really not beautiful, but poignant and memorable. And, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of reminds you of the futility of, of war and, and just everything related to that.
1: I do feel like as brutal and as cynical as this movie is, It almost does kind of have a moral core in the sense that this does kind of feel like an anti war movie.
0: I very much agree with that. Like,
1: the war is never presented as glorious or fun. It's more just like, ugh. Like, you know, even a character like Blondie and Tuco are both kind of like put off by what they see.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. That kind of leads into the finale of the film, right? Like they get across and, and actually before that, like Tuco even says, because at this point in time, like, and, and actually the this whole, this whole scene is really, really great. And all of the dialogue in it is, is really sharp because there's a point in time where, you know, they're setting up all of the bombs and Tuco says, you know, wh- why don't we just tell each other? Like, what yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And Blondie's like, yeah, sure. I don't care. Like, let's, let's talk. And so Blondie tells him the name on the grave, and Tuco says, basically, this is where we're heading. Um, and even before that, like Tuco says, like, when when they're looking at this this battle and and how, you know, impossible it would be to get across this bridge in in the current state of things. Tuco says, Well, buddy, we gotta get across there because I hate to break it to you, but where we're going is across that bridge.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Blondie's like, "Well, where are we going?" And Tuco's like, "Ah, come on." <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That whole aspect is really great. And then eventually we get to them across there, and Tuco thinks that you know he's beaten Blondie and he's got. Well, the by this point, you
1: almost kind of believe that they're almost sort of friends. Yeah. Like by this point, you almost kind of, be- I do kind of genuinely think that Blondie sort of takes a weird liking to Tuco yes. as the movie goes on and you do kind of believe it.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's funny because like I said earlier, Blondie is like the character that I think all of us want to be, but yeah. Tuco is the character that I most identify with in a sense.
1: Me-, me too. Yeah. Poor, pathetic Tuco.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's like how everybody just sees themselves as George Costanza.
1: (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Or how everybody wants to be Rick, but we're all secretly Jerry's.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) True, true. But yeah, so so then, you know, Tuco thinks that he gets away and that he's gonna get to the prize, the treasure before anyone else does, and he's he gets to the grave. And again, like this is a very somber note, right? Like this grave is massive like it's it's thousands upon thousands of people who have been buried here and it's on this hill that kind of you know it goes like down into the hill and there's kind of that that concrete or or rock it's
1: huge yeah
0: patch down in the middle right like it's 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 a monument to death yeah to the (laughs) yeah to the folly of of men but So he he gets down there and... And you know what's
1: funny, though? Like, Tuco and the soundtrack in the camera are all really happy to be there, though.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think think that song that plays there is from, like... Or uh, gets played in, like, the old El Paso, like, commercials or something. I remember that song being critically important to my childhood, and I think it's because of Taco commercials.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, anyways... No, but like there's that great like two or three minute scenes where Tuco is just running around the cemetery and the camera is just zipping around and the soundtrack's like da 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 da. It's almost like, yeah. "Hey guys, we made it!" Like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah look yeah. at all these dead people. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 celebratory and it's it's weird and it's awesome um, and sad and and all of these different emotions all at the same time because you know the, these characters have been through hell to get here. But they're all still alive, so you know. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, it's a it's 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 a stark contrast to where we are. And then you know it's it's that final buildup of all three of these characters together, and we get the duel or the uh, the, the truel as it's called, or the, the no.
1: famous Mexican standoff. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, it's called the truel actually. Okay. Uh, fact. Good yeah. to know. Yeah, actually, this is maybe. Well, this is the most iconic scene of the film. It's also probably the most dissected scene of the film. Like, there's so much discussion about, you know, who who set themselves up best in the shootout, what was Angel Eyes doing with how he was walking and cutting kind of Tuco off, like it's easy way to get dead. It's a really interesting analysis between, you know, where each character is standing because... Like I said, like it, it kind of builds like Blondie and Angel Eyes as kind of like the the two main characters in this standoff. But, uh, you know, like anything could happen, right? Like it's it's three people in the standoff. At some mm-hmm. point, two people are going to get their gun off, and is it going to be two people who are going to shoot two different people? Is Tuco going to side with one person or the other who he thinks maybe he can beat? Uh, like what, where, how is this going to all go down? Essentially.
1: What a scene,
0: yeah. and and so, you know, like I was saying, like there's analysis about Angel eyes and you know he he kind of walks to the side of tuco and and so the analysis about that that I was reading online is that he walk the way he walks, the reason why he goes in that direction is because the sun is behind him. and so it's like a common like idea is when you know you're taking part in a duel. that's the advantage is to be back to the sun
1: that makes sense. I didn't really think of that.
0: Yeah, so it's just like that—a neat little detail in that, a series of neat little details in this film, right? That there was thought about where he would specifically be standing and, and how this how things would get set up. Mm. And then we get the standoff, we get the duel, the Truel, and Blondie and Tuco shoot Angel Eyes together. And then after that, we realize.
1: Do they shoot? No, they don't shoot him together. Blondie shoots him because he secretly unloaded Tuco's gun. Yes, that's the twist. That's the twist. That's the twist, yeah. I will say, if I have one slight criticism of this movie, it's that the Mexican standoff sort of loses some of its tension on rewatch when you know that Blondie has essentially cheated.
0: (laughs) I, yes, but I also forgot about it. And I've only seen this I've only seen this movie once and it was okay. years ago. Fair so enough. So I, I knew how th- how this movie was going to end and I knew who was going to be victorious, but I forgot how we were going to get there. Fair enough. And so I, I thought that was a really fun detail to remember. So mm. you know, if you've seen this movie a dozen times, yeah, obviously like that's gonna lose its potency, but it was it was something that I, I appreciated on this watch again. Mm. You know what we didn't even talk about earlier? The- and and this is another like really great scene is when Tuco builds his own gun at oh, the-, yeah. the gun that store. That actually
1: might be my favorite scene in the whole movie. He just yeah. shakes down this... He just basically robs a gun store.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he he builds his own gun. He like takes apart all the different guns and puts together his favorite pieces.
1: Which apparently you could do back in the day. You could just reassemble and put together your own gun from different pieces
0: yeah he's making different things click and like you know giving the other guy like that you know Mm, kind of thing mm, like yeah (laughs) and then my favorite quote of this scene is where he goes like how much and the guy goes oh like it's fifty dollars and, and then he points the gun at him and he was like, no, how much? How much? And and he says $100. And at first I was like, and I still didn't get it at this point in time. I was right, like, right. is he upcharging him now that he's pulled the gun on him? And then yeah. I was like, oh, he's actually like saying, how much money do you have on you? Yeah,
1: yeah. And then he's like, $200, please. It's all I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's my favorite part of that scene, though, is that. Tuco had previously grabbed, like, a bottle of rum and was drinking from it while he was doing all this, and it's almost like he sort of almost takes pity on the old storekeeper, and he just leaves the bottle, like, here you go. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Apparently, that moment when he takes the clothes sign and puts it in the old man's mouth, apparently that was completely
0: ad-libbed. Yeah, actually, what I'll say on that note as well, this is kind of starting to tiptoe into effects in filming, is... Eli Wallach, the character or the the actor playing Tuco, basically like everything he does in that scene is, is unscripted. Like he didn't really know a whole lot about guns himself and so he was taught how to disassemble and reassemble guns but otherwise he was basically told just like do what you want in that scene. So a lot of like the questioning look on the store owner's face is just, like, genuine, like, what is going on right now? What the fuck, like, right? Yeah. yeah, as he's, like, playing with the different pieces of the gun and everything. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, the, the shoving the sign in his mouth was improvised at the end as well.
1: Mm-hmm. That's pretty f- Apparently, Eli Wallach ad-libbed a lot in this movie, too. Like, that yeah. scene when, like, he's about to be hung from the noose and the crowd is gathered and he like snarls at some old lady apparently that was completely improvised and Sergio Leone liked it and then or like the famous line if you gotta shoot shoot don't talk that was completely improvised like Yeah. yeah. yeah
0: and and he actually didn't mean it to be funny even though it is quite funny and so the entire cast and crew broke down after that scene and it kind of threw him off because like Again, like I said, he wasn't expecting everyone to get such a laugh out of it. Yeah. It was supposed yeah, to be a yeah. very serious line. Right.
1: That's pretty funny. I think the other big scene that I really liked was when Tuko's being tortured in the Union POW camp. And then, like, they've got the musicians playing the songs to cover up the sounds. Right. And you've got the one violin player crying because he knows what's going on. And like Clint Eastwood is just kind of observing from a distance and some of their prisoners like, Oh, your friend is not going to do well. Like we've all been in there, like blah, 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 blah. Like in terms of just and like the way the big guy, I think his name's Wallace is just beating the shit out of Tuco. Like it is genuinely kind of hard to watch
0: It's, it's very brutal. Like it's a very, very violent scene. And you know, like everybody in this camp is a hostage essentially, right? Like there's the Mm -hmm. prisoners of war. There's the musicians who are, I would assume are prisoners of war as well. And the guy who's kind of having them play the music is basically like demanding that they continue playing on as long as they can so that uh, Angel Eyes can do his interrogations as, as he wants. Like, you know there's it, it's, a, it's it's an interesting scene before because there's the foreshadowing right of what we're about to experience here when the real commander of this entire prisoners of war camp is essentially says to him that like he knows that there's things that are going on but because he's he's essentially dying in the camp he can't really do a whole lot to stop what's happening in the camp but he says mm-hmm. you know eventually there's going to be a reckoning for the crimes against humanity that are happening here
1: right and there's that great line where he's kind of accosting angel eyes and he just says like as long as i'm the commandant this will not stand and angel eyes is like yes sir as long as you're the commandant <laughs>
0: like, yeah yeah Yeah, exactly it feels like a threat in a sense
1: yeah 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 it's almost it's like it's like a half-veiled threat yeah which angel eyes is good at delivering And then also, just the fact that Angel Eyes, like all villains, has his henchman doing his dirty work. Like, he's just kind of sitting there smoking his pipe while Wallace is beating the crap out of Tuco.
0: Yeah. Okay. So are you happy to wrap up in front of the camera? Yeah, sure. All right. So sequels, prequels, and reboots really quickly. We talked about this in the primer episode, how this is a prequel of sorts to a fistful of dollars, and for a few dollars more, part of the... Uh, Man With No Name trilogy. The other two movies are set after the Civil War. The way that they're kind of connected, I mean, they're all connected by the character Blondie, who, like you said, has different names in the other films because of how how very loosely these movies are connected. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that can kind of connects them is the poncho that Blondie's wearing. and right. And he acquires it at the end of the film, right? And that's kind of his signature look in the other two movies. Mm-hmm. I think that I will watch this, the two other movies at some point in time. I think that I, I kind of owe it to Sergio Leone to kind of check them out, um, Mm -hmm. especially with how much I love this movie, but you know, just know that the good, the bad and the ugly is kind of the pinnacle of this series.
1: Right. I, yeah.
0: Effects and filming. So there's a, there's so much cool knowledge out here. You know, this movie has been out for like 60 years. It's, got such a massive following there's just so much to kind of dig into here so like for example Sergio Leone barely spoke any English and Eli barely spoke any Italian so they actually both spoke in French to kind of connect in this movie to kind of take directions give directions kind of thing Mm -hmm. in terms of a very interesting connection to a very recent podcast episode that we did Charles Bronson was actually offered both the roles of tuco and angel eyes and he turned both of those roles down that was because he was filming the dirty dozen
1: i think i saw that and what a very different movie this would have been
0: yeah i am glad that he did the dirty dozen as well because uh, that's one of my favorite movies of this year like it's not going to make my top five list but it, it definitely was it was, good. My top 10. It was a good i movie. don't
1: really think as much as i like charles bronson i don't think he would have been right for this character
0: I don't see him being right for either characters either. I think that mm. it was a fateful casting decision that he was not able to, to make time for either characters.
1: Well, with Charles Brunson, you don't get that contrast with Clint Eastwood's character, right? Like Angel Eyes yeah. is very like distinguished looking, right? Whereas Charles Bronson is very like gruff and rough looking. Exactly. So exactly. it wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked.
0: He would have had the looks to play Tuco, but I don't think he would have had the goofiness to play Tuco. I
1: don't think Charles Brunson was ever all that funny. Sorry. No. But uh
0: No, exactly. We talked about Tuco's gun. It's really interesting in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly that he carries it on a lanyard rather than holstered. Um it's a it's a very interesting decision because I think the the pistol holster is kind of an iconic part of Western cinema. The reason why is because Eli told Sergio that he always has trouble pulling the pistol or putting the pistol back in the holster without looking at it. So he didn't want that kind of like to remove the illusion of, of these rough and tough guys that know their way around a gun, right? Mm. And so he put it on the, the lanyard, I think, just to make it a little easier to to reach for. Um, What's really funny about it as well is apparently he wanted Eli to essentially, like, whip his body so that the gun would come up and he would just, like, grab it kind of, like, as the gun propels forward in the air. Right. And Eli just could not get it to, like, do that because that's silly. (laughs) So Sergio tried to show him, like, what he meant, and he ended up, like, the way he hit it, he, he accidentally, like... Uh, nutshotted himself with the gun, and then was like, "You know what? Just just pull the gun out from your <laughs> hey man. Happens
1: to the best of us. We've all yeah. nutshotted ourselves at some point.
0: Uh, yeah. What's really wild. So a lot of these stories are kind of Tuco related, and that's I think because Eli has been one of the most outspoken. Was one of the most outspoken actors of the film, and you know I think this is his most iconic role by a mile. So you know this is this is what he was remembered for, and what people would have asked him about his whole life. But the scene where he's got his—he's handcuffed to Angel's right-hand man,
1: uh, Wallace. I think his yeah. name was Wallace. He's like, "I love big fat men like you because when they fall, they make a lot of noise, and that sometimes <laughs> they don't get up." <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So when Tuco is trying to get the handcuffs off of them, and he like lays under the train as the train goes over. Yeah, that—that that was a real stunt that. Eli did like where the train drove over him basically and Sergio was like oh yeah like it's gonna be like absolutely terrifying like you know this train is gonna literally drive over you basically but you know you won't get hurt kind of thing and if you watch the scene very carefully he almost gets his head taken off by a step Eli had no idea that that had happened until like you know the movie came out essentially (laughs) that he almost died in that scene
1: I think I heard that Sergio wanted to do another take and Eli was just like, no, like you better have got it. Yeah. Like I'm not doing that again.
0: Speaking of, of having to retake important scenes, the bridge exploding scene was accidentally exploded once before because of a miscommunication between the crew. The Spanish army was heavily involved with like all of the, the war reenactment scenes. Okay. Okay. So, Leon was giving somebody else directions. So, he said "ve," which means go. But then the the code to say, like, blow up the bridge was vey ve, which is, it's okay to proceed, basically, right. in Spanish. So, they're, they're, like, very similar, you know, words. And so, the Spanish captain heard the other person say that and was like, okay, we're supposed to blow up the bridge now. And so they blew up their bridge without having any Whoops. cameras rolling. So at that point in time, like, you know, Sergio was more than a little upset about it, fired everybody. And the Spanish uh, army called him and said, you know what, like our mistake, we, what we'll do is we'll actually rebuild the entire bridge for you so that we can re-blow it up on the condition that you rehire the, the crew basically
1: wow that's really funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he was just like okay fine that awkward moment you have to rehire everybody back after you've fired the whole company
0: <laughs> you know like that's almost like a meme at this point in movies right when somebody goes like oh you're all fired kind of thing no yeah. that, that actually is somewhat built in reality
1: <laughs> that's really really funny
0: yeah Kind of related to the bridge as well, like uh, another actor almost dying. Clint Eastwood came within two feet of dying because, as we see, like him and Tuco hide behind the sandbags. If you watch the that scene in slow motion where they jump and then the sh- uh it explodes, there's a fist size rock that two feet away from him la- like two feet away from his head, kind of lands. So, yeah cool this is before we had like all of the precautions in place and or cgi
1: this is before we gave a shit
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes actors just died
1: yeah hey sometimes sometimes they die
0: (laughs) yeah we can't save all of them right yeah so like i said this was actually shot in spain and that was you know I, i kind of talked about that in the primer episode how spaghetti westerns you know they're heavily italian but there's also a, a large kind of spanish component to them like most of the movie was actually shot in spain and in the spanish desert versus uh there was a few shots in rome i believe that they used uh okay early on but otherwise this is this is mainly shot in spain and they had 1500 spanish soldiers that they used as extras especially in you know like the big bridge scene hmm so when we get to the cemetery and Tuco digs up the one grave and there's a skeleton in that grave, that was a real skeleton.
1: I thought it looked pretty realistic.
0: Yeah. It was a, actually was a Spanish actress who, uh, her final wish before she died was that she continued to act even after her death. And so that was there. Now way of that preparing.
1: is a professional. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So kind of a weird little trivia piece uh, for you that you can add into uh, your trivia night.
1: How many movies have we seen, though, where like there's skeletons and it turns out they were real dead bodies? Like it's almost a weird like that's almost a meme at this point.
0: Definitely more than one. And this yeah. one, being that one, that first one. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, Blake, when I die, I want to keep writing somehow. So I'm going to leave that t- for you to figure out. Just program an AI to keep writing books in my voice.
0: Yeah, th- those are all the big things that I want to talk about. Um, The poncho that Blondie gets at the end of the movie is the literal exact same poncho that they used in the previous two movies, and it hadn't been washed or cleaned. Uh, so it was kind of like Clint with lucky charm, I guess. Huh. Yeah.
1: Can we talk about how heartbreaking that scene is, though, where he comforts the dying soldier? Yeah. And like he gives him his jacket and he gives him a few puffs on his cigar. Mm-hmm. I was I this I was making a joke about this earlier, but it's almost like Clint Eastwood ex- connects to other human beings through his cigar. Like he gives Tuco his cigar when he's trying to comfort him. He gives this dying guy his cigar when he's he's just expressing empathy through nicotine as a man yeah. should.
0: I I mean the cigar is definitely ever present throughout the film right like that's how tuco tracks him down
1: it's a good visual shorthand for showing empathy right because it's kind of it's kind of an intimate thing like this thing was just in my mouth now it's in in your mouth (laughs) like
0: it's as close as we can get to the good the bad and the ugly all making out
1: i think there are like a small subset of fans who interpret tuco and blondie's relationship as homoerotic
0: I am sure you can find plenty of stories on the internet to support that. I
1: think Quint I might have read somewhere that Quentin Tarantino even kind of believes it.
0: Quentin Tarantino's his gay theory is about uh Top Gun. That that's the big oh, story. Oh, right. You
1: did show me that out for yeah. a while ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, not he every, might have not every story can Quentin Tarantino can think is is gay.
1: Well, he might have a gay theory for this movie too. So <laughs> We'll see. Uh,
0: I don't see it as much. Top Gun is a very it feels like there's some underlying sexual tension between some of the characters, but Sure, sure. But uh I don't I don't see it as much. I
1: as don't much. I didn't really see it too too much in this movie, but I did think it was kind of interesting. It wasn't
0: like in it wasn't like in uh oh no, what's it called? Like Ben-Hur where it's like yeah. the two main characters you're like, "Oh yeah, those two they shared more than a cigar."
1: Apparently though, I think there's a rumor that Sergio Leone made... Sergio Leone... I think there's a rumor that Quentin Tarantino... I think there's a rumor that Sergio... Wait, do you
0: think there's a rumor?
1: (laughs) I think there's a rumor that Sergio Leone made Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach share a
0: bed during filming. He didn't force them to. I can't remember the circumstance in which they had to. And then Eli's wife actually joked that he was the only man to ever share a bed with Clint Eastwood. (laughs) well that we know of so <laughs> yeah okay moving on to score one of the most important aspects of this film I think it's the thing that it's so iconic like the ah,
1: wah, da, wah, da, wah, da. Wah. yeah exactly ah.
0: It's so iconic and it's, you know, it's ever present. It's literally the opening of the film is the song. It draws you in. If if this is your first time experiencing the film, it's like, oh my God, like I know this song. Like this is like the typical Western song because it kind of is the typical Western right. song. It's certainly the most famous. It's Ennio Morricone's was the one who created it. And so he designed it to kind of mimic the sound of a howling howling coyote, which actually you can kind of hear it. Once you know that, it's like, yeah, that's exactly the sound that that I'm hearing.
1: Wah, wah,
0: wah, wah. Yeah. yeah. It's it's epic. It's it's so good. It kind of You know
1: what? For a guy like me who never notices score, this is probably my favorite film score of
0: all time. I would agree this is one of the best film scores of all time. Hmm. It's not even a I wouldn't say there's a lot of film scores that quite top this one, especially original film scores, right? No, definitely not. And it was actually like they debated because there's this trumpet that's kind of present in it as well. And Leon was like the one who really wanted the trumpet sounds in the score. And he had to convince Neo to actually add that in there.
1: Huh. Interesting.
0: I actually do have a slight, and and you know what? You can maybe correct me if I'm wrong here. I intend to. I have a slight gripe here. This is my only other gripe with the film is that the I think the mix could have been slightly better here because there were points in time where I thought the score and the sound effects somewhat overpowered some of the dialogue. Um, hmm. it's like like I actually was finding and. and this is something that, you know, like is it's kind of dreaded is where you're sitting with the remote and you're like increasing the uh, volume for the yeah, uh, yeah. dialogue and then decreasing it for all of the action. Normally, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily always care about that, but it was something that I noticed and Jess was trying to sleep while I was watching this. So it was also something that I was like, uh, like I got to decrease the sound here, but now I can't hear what they're saying. So I got to increase right. it kind of again. So I don't know if you noticed that as much with the DVD, but... You know what? I didn't, so... Okay. It might have just been where I was listening or where I was watching it through, like, with the Super Channel, but... And again, it was because I... Also slightly because I was hyper-aware of the sound, but it was it was a slight I had Because your
1: wife was sleeping.
0: My wife!
1: There you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, this is a really cool quote that I actually read uh during my research is this is actually pitchfork a very famous website that focuses on music and music reviews they did a you know they do top music lists right and so this is considered the uh 32nd greatest theme song of the 1960s and they have a really cool quote that kind of explains the importance of of this score and and its place in film history so i'm just going to read it out really quickly film was the most important medium of the 20th century and ennio morricone was amongst its chief, chief architects the good the bad and the ugly didn't simply reinvent soundtracks it reinvented movies for even the most uncouth audiences the title theme hell just the opening wah 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 is synonymous with stoicism murder and pop art delirium despite the wagnerian crescendos and theatrical irony every effect is critical and unforgettable pacing boots tribal flutes flaring surf guitars indian war wounds, ah. field recording floatsam meth mangled trumpet solos in just under three minutes morricone condenses all of the greatest elements of music from opera garage music concrete Peyote songs, whatever, and layers it over stampeding horses and shotgun blast. It's kaleidoscopic, exhilarating, and incontrovertibly badass. I could not have said it better myself. That's a very
1: well written quote. I have to give the author props.
0: Yes, I will say the author. Alex Lindhart.
1: Good job, Alex. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I I thought it I thought it was a very well-written quote about. Yeah, that guy's clearly
1: a good writer.
0: Yeah. Just a quick look back at the times. I just wanted to mention, you know, you kind of alluded to it before already, how the movie, it actually was released in Europe first because it's a spaghetti western. Spaghetti westerns actually, at this point in time, were not well regarded in the US. Like, they were kind no. of seen as, like, cheap knockoffs of Hollywood film.
1: Well, I'm not a huge, like, history buff, but I think... By this point in the sixties, the western itself had just completely saturated the market.
0: Yes, absolutely, it had. And so, the movie, when it was released in the U.S., it actually did not was not well received by critics. Mm-hmm. It's funny because Roger Ebert. This is actually at a point in time I was reading his revised review he said in his original review that he was giving the film a lower rating just because it was a spaghetti Western. And that because of that, he could not consider it art. And then in the reevaluation, the one that I read, he, he said it like, you know, that basically like that was kind of shameful. Like he almost Mm -hmm. didn't want to go against the grain at that point in time, how, you know, like he was still trying to find his voice in in film criticism because he'd only been doing it for like a year and, and it, eventually became a four-star film for him. I think it's on his it has to be on his greatest movies list. It's considered, you know, at this point one of the greatest films of all time, right?
1: You have to give Roger Ebert credit. He was definitely not afraid to look back on his own work and be like, "Oh, wait, I was wrong." Like, uh. well,
0: and and hindsight is always 2020, 20, right? Like, it, here's the I guess the thing is is, you know, this is a different period in time and I was actually I listened to a podcast about Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel recently. And it's so interesting because it, this is a pre-internet era, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, your resources for learning about whether a movie is good or bad are so much different than they are today, right? Like we almost have too many resources to hear whether new movies are worth your time or not worth your time or, you know, like how, how streaming platforms like, shove things down our throat or the, or they're like you know like this is the most streamed thing today you should watch it because it's the mm. most streamed thing today and you know like there I, I gotta believe that that is partially just like made up bs like whoever just wants whatever to for more people to watch kind of thing right
1: like a marketing ploy yeah
0: yeah exactly um and and we know that there's corruption to imdb scores and rotten tomato scores uh, especially with user scores, right? Like there's mm-hmm. review bombing and all, all sorts of things like that. And so I, I guess what I'm getting at here is that Roger Ebert at this point in time has the benefit of time and being able to relook at this and, and re kind of evaluate also slightly based on the thoughts and the moods of audiences as, as time went on, kind of thing, right? The other thing as well is I think when this movie originally was released in the U.S., there was uh, maybe 20 to 30 minutes cut out of the film. Uh, so he actually wasn't even watching the full film itself uh, when he was first viewing it. And well, you so- know, that's,
1: that's a good question. Did you watch the full director's cut or the trimmed down American version?
0: I believe it was the full American or the full cut. Like it was three hours long.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, I I think I've only ever watched the three-hour version. I mean, I've only watched the movie twice, but how long is the original cut?
1: I think there was the full like three-hour version, uh, and then they cut 16 minutes out of it for the yes, American version. You are correct,
0: and so I've only ever watched the full three-hour version.
1: See, that's interesting, because like, I did catch some of the deleted scenes on YouTube. Mm-hmm i think the dvd that i have is just the slightly trimmed down american version Oh, to be honest i actually i think i prefer the trimmed down version
0: what do you know what scenes they were cut
1: did you see a scene with tuco like recruiting his cronies and he's yes lugging around a chicken yes he has that line where he's like why do you live to work when work kills you or something like that Right. And then like there's that scene in the desert where like he tries he washes he's torturing Blondie and he tries to get Blondie to like drink he washes his feet in like a bucket of water, then he tries to get Blondie to drink his foot water. Yeah. I and then there's the scene where Blondie is making camp with Angel Eyes and he shoots one of Angel Eyes' henchmen. And that's when it kind of reveals that Angel Eyes has like a little posse that's been following them but
0: but that scene is actually really cool because he blondie has the quote of six bullets six like is the, the perfect number, number. yeah it's the perfect number yeah and he's like isn't three the perfect number and he was like no i've got six bullets have, yeah. yeah i've got six bullets and, and you know he's looking at them he's like there's literally six of you like this is perfect
1: you know what to be fair like in this might be because i've watched the trimmed down version so many times but like mm-hmm. I almost found the deleted scenes jarring and I'm I almost, imagine
0: you would, right?
1: Yeah, like I actually at some point I'm going to have to watch the full version, but I feel like I would like it less. Like some of the deleted scenes I watched on their own, I just found kind of weird and off-putting. And they're again,
0: certainly strange, that but they I think that they're especially the Tuko related ones kind of just build on the goofiness to Tuko's character and i don't yeah know and problem. like there's also
1: a scene with angel eyes visiting like a like a war-torn fort and like he has a weird moment of compassion where he gives like a bottle of booze to some soldier like
0: yes i i just... actually like that scene i actually really liked i mm. forgot about that scene but i like i i really like that scene um and and yeah, I, I honestly, other than maybe the scene where Tuco kind of reconnects with his old partners, that scene's maybe a little over the top, but of the other scenes, I, I think we're all very good and very well You know
1: what? I will have to give it the full version a Watch at some point, but again, yeah, I think I will just find it jarring and weird because I've seen the American version so many times that like, it'll be very obvious to me what, is a deleted scene and what isn't. I'll yeah. just be like, "Whoa! Like, what's going on?" Like, for sure. Yeah, maybe the scene at like with Angel Eyes and Blondie at camp. May- I think that scene maybe should have been kept in, but everything else, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm kind of glad we cut this. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: All right, getting back on track because we're getting a little long on the episode here. Yep, yep. Let's talk legacy really quickly and, and wrap this up. The legacy of this film, I, I want to start with, this is Quentin Tarantino related because of, of course how it influential is. this film is to his filmography, but the Mexican standoff, the truel, as you will, is a really fascinating idea. It's actually, like I said, it's been really like deeply studied. There's actually mathematical papers that you can read up on. Explaining- that is
1: hilarious and awesome.
0: Yeah, it, it, there's like it's like a almost like a, a complex equation as to like how the outcomes of the truel can come to be. Like it's it's a very interesting idea. I, it, it's something that I actually think I might read about, learning about kind of all of the significance behind it. So the other movies that the truel are most prominent in are Inglourious Bastards, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Escape from LA. Three of Quentin Tarantino's most beloved films. <laughs> yep. And a weird sequel reboot of one of my favorite movies of all time.
1: <laughs> yeah. Funny that quite the pedigree.
0: Yeah. I, so I, I thought that that was really interesting. You've already said that the showdown scene is uh, Quentin Tarantino has already said that that's his favorite cut in the history of movies. Um, And then it's, uh, And knowing kind of what I just said, like how, you know, it's been used frequently in his films that obviously he's trying to recreate something that's very special to him. It's cool that, you know, he brings that up in his movies. The other kind of bit of this legacy, this is the highest rated movie on IMDb that did not win an Oscar. Now, again, I, I just talked about how the movie was not well received when it originally came to the States because of... The nature of the film itself being a spaghetti western but it actually wasn't eligible to be voted for an oscar oh because it's a foreign
1: film right
0: no because the film came out a year before it was released in the u.s oh so,
1: yeah
0: yeah so it awkward kind of missed yeah it's uh it's window of being nominated just the way that the rules work kind of on that note as well like i actually didn't realize that IMDB that this is the 10th greatest film on IMDB and what i want you to do really quickly actually is pull up the IMDB top 250 because i want to i want to discuss it with you do you know how to do you know where it is how to get there
1: uh i just googled it IMDB top 250 movies
0: so uh, you see, see it with the Shawshank, the Godfather. Shawshank,
1: Godfather, Dark Knight, Godfather Part 2, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, take, take um, a quick look. The Good, look. the Bad, and the Ugly, number 10. Un- I see
0: See the list? It's the 10th greatest film of all time. You said it's your favorite movie of all time. Yes. That doesn't necessarily mean that, like, my favorite movie of all time is probably Mad Max Fury Road and then, like, I don't know the Godfather kind of thing. I'm not saying that Mad Max Fury Road is a better movie than the Godfather, but you know, personal taste over over objective. Of course, the best movie ever made. Now, I guess the question that I kind of have for you is: knowing that this is your favorite movie of all time, do you think that this should be higher or lower on the top ten or on the top 250 list? Is there any movies on the list that maybe? should be debatable whether they're better movies than the good, the bad and the ugly. Like what are your thoughts? See, I don't really, I'm
1: not really an IMDB guy. I don't know how they rank their movies, but like just looking at the top 10, I would absolutely put this over Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. I would absolutely put it over Lord of the Rings, return of the King. I would absolutely <laughs> put it over Pulp Fiction, Schindler's List. I haven't seen 12 angry men, so I can't comment. I haven't seen, the Godfather Part Two can't comment. I would also put it over The Dark Knight and Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if I would put it over The Godfather though.
0: The Godfather is a hard sell. I, I yeah, think. and and so here's the funny thing. I guess to kind of fill people in on on maybe a little bit of IMDb lore, but The Shawshank Redemption is the number one rated movie of all time. But there's kind of a this er, le- legend that the godfather part one and the godfather part two are are often argued by people whether or not one of them is better than the other and which one the better movie is and so sure. there's kind of a there's this legend that those two movies kind of split the boat, vote and that one of them should actually probably be the number one movie of all time and shawshank kind of ekes in because of kind of that feud between which movie is better
1: oh so shawshank is like a successful third party candidate
0: exactly <laughs>
1: okay okay <laughs> Interesting,
0: but huh. okay. So, so you actually you think that the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is objectively one of the best movies of all time, it, it, and it potentially should be higher on this list.
1: See, I don't know if I should. I can say objectively. I can only speak to my personal taste, and okay. I would personally rank it higher than
0: those other movies. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pose some question to you because I actually I looked at this list and went, that's really interesting. I think that there are three movies that I personally would rank higher than The Good, Bad, and The Ugly, outside of the discussion of what surpasses it in that top 10. Sure. And those three movies are The Matrix, Goodfellas, and Apocalypse Now.
1: Okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I I think that the order of those three movies probably for me are like, uh, Goodfellas and Apocalypse Now are like neck and neck basically even like any given day i would say one of them's higher than the other and then the matrix would be the next highest one on that list for well me. you know
1: if i had to rank my top three favorite movies it would be the good the bad and the ugly mm-hmm. casablanca and the big lebowski nice those yeah, are I think my big three
0: lebowski is one of my favorite movies of all yeah time those
1: would probably be my top three but i would probably have to put this movie in my number one spot yeah pretty no, firmly
0: yeah, I I I think that's a, a really good list. Yeah, we we really need to do Big Lebowski because it's my top five favorite movies. We things. really need to do comedy.
1: Casablanca too.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh huh. Yeah, we, we. I mean, we've got a list of like five hundred movies. Jesus, we're gonna be busy for a while.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah. I did also write down what the next highest westerns are on the top two fifty list. Those are Once Upon a Time in the West, another Sergio Leone movie. And Django Unchained.
1: I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in the West. I do really like Django Unchained. That might actually be my favorite Tarantino movie.
0: Fair enough. You and I did this to our, our ranking list before, and I don't remember what I ended up putting in my number one place, but that's that's a debate for another time. Maybe that's neither time. here nor there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, very interesting piece of Hollywood history here. So we've talked about this before, The Hayes Code the code that Hollywood kind of stuck with from the 30s through the 60s, you know, how they could only show, like, certain types of violence or, like, not show, like, nudity. It was a very, like, strict, like, policy um, in place on movies. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly wasn't a part of the Hollywood standards. And so because of that, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly breaks a lot of the Hayes Code and is actually one of the main contributing factors to why Hollywood actually did away with the Hayes Code is because after the eventual success of this film, you know, Hollywood looked at this and went, how are we going to compete with international films that aren't held to the same kind of standards that we have? Mm. So very, very important film for movie history and getting kind of more R rated kind of big mainstream films with lots of gore and, or not gore, but like, you know, more, there's just more like it's, it's less restricted kind of stuff.
1: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Um, The last thing I was going to say legacy wise is that sad Hill cemetery, the closing shot of the film actually wasn't a real cemetery. And it was just like a set piece that the army created or actually the pyrotechnic crew created. Huh? And you can actually go visit it now. It became kind of a point of interest in Spain because of, you know, the prominence of this movie. But they just, they built this whole like massive set piece, which is huge. Like in the, it's, it's so large. And that's actually something that you and I probably should have talked about beforehand. But just like some of the wide angle shots of this film are just stunning. Like the mm. the imagery of, of the desert is beautiful.
1: Picturesque, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so in... 2015 a group of people on the internet decided to coalesce together and find where the cemetery was originally built they dug up you know that that platform that like they just left the cemetery as is and walked away
1: sure that's what you did back in the day you just yeah. made it you just made it somebody else's problem
0: yeah and they actually dug up that platform that was in the middle where the standoff happens. Oh yeah, they dug it up and they restored the whole like cemetery to its movie kind of picture or uh, movie kind of set, and so you could actually go visit that today, which is really cool.
1: That is, that's when you know you've made something important is when sixty years later people are searching for evidence of your movie.
0: Yeah, after you know they completed it, each of them like all of the participants put their names on the crosses and everything. There's a whole documentary about it called Sad Hill Unearthed. And they actually had, like, this big, like, event to kind of open it to the public. And Aneo Morricone, the sound producer, the composer, James Hetfield from Metallica, and Clint Eastwood all kind of showed up for, for this grand opening. Which that's is really, really
1: cool. cool. That's really yeah. sweet.
0: Yeah. That's that's it for Legacy. So per- personal reviews and the partner factor. Honestly, I don't think we even need to spend a whole lot of time on this. You know, you and I have just lamented throughout this podcast how how much we love this movie you've even said at this point your number one movie of all time yep
1: that's why we're doing it this is my yeah. birthday present to myself yep. <laughs> <We're> doing it
0: <laughs> no i'm glad you picked it i haven't seen a lot of westerns you know i've seen maybe half a dozen to a dozen westerns in my life newer westerns older westerns kind of mixed in there this is definitely the best western of all time
1: no doubt about i it. am inclined to agree
0: i love i love butch cassidy and the sundance kid it is one of my favorite movies of all time but the good the bad and the ugly is better
1: well butch cassidy is a very different vibe it's like a comedy this is like
0: it's a buddy movie and this this isn't quite a buddy movie you were kind of making that comparison but i don't necessarily i know i don't agree with it but
1: well it's also like this movie kind of gives you a sense of like if i may be so bold what the old west may have actually been like like Everyone in this movie is dirty and sweaty. <laughs> like,
0: Well, Sergio Leone is like a, a big student of history. Like he, he found the war very interesting and did a lot of research into it. And so a lot of like this, I think the set pieces and the costume design, a lot of that's very authentic. You know, the story isn't necessarily based in any reality or anything like that, but just a lot of these ideas were definitely pulled from the past. Hmm. I guess as well, you know, this is a very important time in not only American history, but world history, because this is the first war to be caught on camera. Like this is the first war where we had photography. And so you can actually go back and look at old photographs of the Civil War. And they're really fascinating, actually. Gross. Well, it's a lot of like pictures of, of men sitting at tents and, and encampments and stuff like oh, that oh not as gross I guess not as gross it's black and white like from 200 plus years ago right 200 years ago it, I don't think it's,
1: it's even been 200 years Blake I think it's been like 150-ish
0: years yeah but anyway it's uh <laughs> it, there's there's a lot of history about there there's a lot of imagery that you can view so it, it's a very interesting point in human history. it's it's the next step in documentation of human history right so
1: yeah for sure
0: so yeah i think that's it like i would say this is i don't know if this makes my top 10 list because i have a lot of movies that i love and i've watched a lot of movies in my life but it's certainly in the top 15 like Mm -hmm. i'm not even gonna say top 20 it's in my top 15 it's it's a fantastic movie i forgive you (laughs) (laughs) i just i I love movies and i have a lot of personal favorites like and you and i actually share a lot of those movies like you said the big lebowski and and stuff like that. at a
1: certain point we need to sit down maybe on mic maybe just one day and actually list out like our top 20 my list has probably changed a lot over the last 10 years
0: yeah it would be really cool to discuss like how our lists have changed and and adapted over the last 10 years and what's maybe been added in the last 10 years as well yeah that's a an idea for a podcast episode in the future that we will certainly do i also have an idea in the background that i don't necessarily want to discuss on podcast right now but it is something that i think we are building towards as we build this collection of of films for people to watch essentially old movies for people to watch
1: yeah absolutely
0: so yeah on that note is there anything else you want to talk about? Do you, is there anything else you want to lament on for your personal review? I kind of,
1: I, kind of I don't think you, you understand about. what the word lament means, but regardless,
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> probably not. You know me. I don't. I'm. I know 0. 0.75 of the English language at this point. Yeah, that's okay. I I'm only all, know I've p- almost mastered it.
1: I only know 0. 0.8. So,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> no, not really. Like I said, I could not convince my partner to watch this with me this week, but I'll get her eventually. Yeah, and. No, yeah, this is just this is a really good movie.
0: It holds up extraordinarily well, shockingly well.
1: Shockingly, you know, it's funny. I was kind of like, "Ah, oh, fuck, we've got to record tomorrow." And I like pulled it up. I'm like, "Okay, come on, let's just get through this." I'm, I'm moving. I started a new job. I'm in a new relationship. I'm busy, right? Yep. And like within half an hour, I was like spellbound and just yes. like staring at the screen, like, uh, <laughs> like,
0: yeah. I, I fully agree like it, it, it's just it's so enticing like that that first hour really captures your attention mm-hmm. and and a lot of it's on the director to do that because of the way it's it's filmed I think and then we get into like the plot and everything later but it, it's first just that that build of of the setting and the set pieces and, and everything in this world that we live in
1: I particularly like the opening shot again just it's this big broad panoramic shot and then just this dude just his face just sways into frame. <laughs> it's Yeah. It's just it's a really great way. It might be one of my favorite opening shots of all time just in the way it goes from an extreme wide shot to an extreme close up. It's really jarring and it really gets your attention.
0: It often feels like you're there. Like your frame of reference is you in the action
1: yeah what's also funny is that that guy that we meet in the first shot he's fucking nobody yeah like he's not the hero he's not the villain he shows up again later but like he's completely inconsequential to the whole story it's essentially
0: it's it's essentially like the intro to all the game of thrones series right like where we have this this inconsequential character that kind of dies Yeah. yeah he dies yeah exactly even though twist he doesn't die in this one and and you know game of thrones they always die
1: well he dies eventually so (laughs)
0: well yeah eventually but like they usually die in like the opening act the opening scene of the film Mm -hmm. but yeah great 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 film upcoming we've got our horror episode for halloween don't know what that's going to be yet if you got a recommendation let us know as always tell your dad about us Tell your dad if he's alive. And then go watch it with him because this is a great father-son movie. We've been watching a lot of father-daughter movies lately. This is a good father-son movie. Mm -hmm. Unless your uh, dad wanted a son and got a daughter like Jess. Okay, (laughs)
1: let's wrap this up.
0: (laughs) All right. See you next time.
1: Bye-bye.